Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Starting sometime next year, companies that want to sell software to the government will need to sign new attestations, certifying that they've taken certain steps to make sure their software is secure. Earlier this month, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released its latest draft of the form companies will need to submit. One of the biggest changes is the attestations will have to be signed by companies' CEOs, but there are several other updates, too. To talk more about them and to get an industry perspective, we're joined now by Leopold Wildenauer, the Senior Manager for Public Sector Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. And Leopold, let me just ask you broadly, for starters, um, what's your general take on this second draft from CISA? Do they appear to be headed in the right direction? Well, thank you for that question, Jared. And as you know, uh, two years ago, the Biden administration came out with the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. And ever since then, agencies have been working tirelessly to deliver the assignments from that EO. Fast forward to about two weeks ago when CISA published this near final draft of the new self-attestation form. Industry has been paying close attention to this issue from the very beginning because there are a couple of outstanding questions that we have about how exactly this collection process will be implemented. I think some of the issues that we had flagged in previous comments were addressed by the update, but there are a couple of outstanding items I'm happy to talk about today. Yeah, let's take those in order. Talk first about what they did address to your satisfaction in this second draft and then what you think is still outstanding. So what we were pleased to see addressed in this uh, update uh, to the form was the uh, inclusion of a statement that the attestation is to the best of the signatory's uh, knowledge. That is something that we had called for in our comments that we had provided on the initial draft of the form. And we were very much pleased to see that there was an openness from uh, CISA to take uh, public feedback and really work with that and address stakeholder feedback in a meaningful manner. And what do you think still needs to be addressed as the process continues to unfold? So one of the topics that I think still needs to be addressed is the issue of flexibility. If you look at the form, the self-attestation is a product a product of the cyber EO. So there are multiple tiebacks to larger cybersecurity policy priorities as well. One obvious example here is the connection of the form back to the SSDF, the Secure Software Development Framework. The SSDF was developed in partnership with industry stakeholders and outlines a number of security practices that can really help secure the software development process. So it does go to support uh, this desired outcome of a more secure software development. The SSDF is designed in a flexible manner, which is a good thing because it gives developers the option to choose the right tool for their specific development context. The self-attestation, again, references specific implementation examples from the SSDF, which is concerning to industry because it removes some of the flexibility that is contained in the SSDF. We believe it would be better for the self-attestation to actually reference the higher level processes instead of the discrete examples, because that would provide really that adaptability that is so critical to implementing the SSDF. And one of the biggest changes in in this draft specifically seems to be that CIS is going to require a sign-off by the CEO. And previously, I think the CEO was allowed to delegate that lower. It seems to be in line with what CISA has said before about how they think, you know, 
CEOs and boards need to take accountability for the security of their software. I wonder, you know, if, if you think this achieves that or are most CEOs already there? I think that's exactly right, that the intention behind this is to raise cybersecurity to a board level issue and really bring it into the boardroom for a consideration. I think that this will be very specific and depend on the discrete context and the discrete company that you're looking at. So I think that generally speaking, we're seeing a trend into cybersecurity discussions happening more taking place in those uh, boardrooms. But I think there's still uh, room to grow. And what we would like to see is to reinstate the designee option, because especially for larger companies, it can be challenging to have a sign-off by the CEO or the CEO uh, for these self-attestation forms, even if we understand where CIS uh, is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that gets back to the point that you made where the CEO is signing off to the best of their knowledge. And there's some good faith language in there, too, which seems like a big loophole, which almost raises the question of of what's the point of raising it to that level if there is a, a workaround of that size or of that significance. I would disagree that it's a loophole. I think it goes back to the question of how you're thinking about liability. And there is a lot of attention that's been paid to the uh, software liability issue. And I think we will see this come up again when we look at the deliverable and uh, at the symposium from the National Cyber uh, Security Strategy that ONCD is putting together early next year. So I think we will see some of those discussions there. And I would view this forum as one of the stepping stones towards this discussion. But I think uh, there's still a lot of discussion that needs to take place. How do you think about this in relationship to all the other things that companies need to do to be compliant with federal requirements when it comes to software security? I mean, is this an additional burden that companies have to think about, or is it more in harmony with other things that may be coming down the pike, like CMMC? In other words, if you're if you're compliant with the other things, are you already compliant with this form and it's not a huge thing to worry about? I think both the administration and industry are aligned in their uh, thinking and in their desire to reduce the burden and to streamline the process as much as possible here. One of the changes that we've seen with the form is that it uh, does allow for uh, FedRAMP 3PAO's assessments to be considered in lieu of this self-attestation form. I think there's another uh, point to this where Agencies need to take certain steps to make sure that they are set up for success by the time that they actually need to start collecting these forms, which is this question of the centralized repository. I think that industry and the administration, again, are aligned in their desire to streamline the collection process to the greatest extent possible. And that is why OMB had tasked CISA and GSA to develop a centralized repository that will help facilitate the collection and the secure storage of these attestation forms. To this date, we're not aware that this system is up and running just yet. So we would really like to see the prioritization of this effort to ensure that it doesn't become this additional burden that you talked about, but really helps with the streamlining and the efforts that are currently happening to harmonize the regulatory landscape. 
And I think the last specific thing I wanted to ask you about is there is some language in the form that that says that agencies can go beyond the specific requirements of the form and ask for S-bombs, other artifacts, if they deem that necessary. I I wonder how worrisome that is to you. I I guess part of it depends on how many agencies accept that invitation from CISA to do that. I think here it is important to go back to the original memo and to look at what we are doing. talking about here. This form came about because of the OMB Memorandum M2218, which directs federal agency heads to leverage their FISMA authorities to request information from their contractors to ensure that they meet certain minimum security requirements. So this is a FISMA authority issue, and agencies already have these authorities to request additional information under FISMA. So having this form will actually standardize the process because it provides one common form uh, for agencies to use. So in a way, it is actually preferable to have one form rather than every agency go about and uh, issue their own form, which again, OMB has made clear is still an option, but it will need to pass through the Paperwork Reduction Act review. I think there's one more issue that really stands out to us, and that's the issue of the software inventory. So I think in order then to set up all of the players for success and to ensure that the form collection will be ready by the time that the requirement kicks in, there's still a lack of understanding within industry of which products will be categorized as critical software versus all other software. And that is complicated by the fact that software producers don't always have full visibility into who the final end users of their products are. So if you just think of commercial software that is being sold through a third-party reseller or software that is embedded within a larger complex system, for example, like a car, these types of software are in scope for this attestation requirements if you really look into it. So agencies will need to come up with a comprehensive list of the software products that they do use to ensure that these attestations are available on time for all of the products that are being used by federal agencies. We would urge agencies to get in touch with software producers of those covered products so that they can do the legwork upfront and agencies actually deliver on their testing that was outlined in M2218. Leopold Wildenauer is the Senior Manager for Public Sector Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities 
is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.